team, we thank you for ministering to the Lord and to us. We are grateful for you. So, what we pass on to our children is important, right? Right? So what your parents passed on to you has had an effect on your life, whether they passed it on well or not so well. What you pass on to your kids will, will, will matter to them. We all live in the reality of some type of inheritance that we have. And some of us, it was a great inheritance, some of us not so great. The good news is in Jesus, he's giving us a brand new inheritance. He's giving us of himself. He's transforming our lives more and more to him. But what we give our kids is important. And I think oftentimes, you know, what, look, what in my life looks like passing on things to my kids is what I call bedtime theology, right? You have the whole day, you're living your life out, you're teaching them about Jesus, but at night when you're tucking your kids in, you have an opportunity really to pass on some good theology. I remember times falling asleep at night as a kid, kind of processing through what I learned about God that day and, you know, singing the songs that I was taught or kind of meditating on uh, what I had learned or what I had picked up this day. And this bedtime theology is pretty powerful. During this week, I had an opportunity to impart some bedtime theology for my four-year-old daughter. Actually, it wasn't really at bedtime. It was in the middle of the night. And uh, she was having a hard time because she had had a bad dream. She woke up and had a bad dream. Now, sometimes she wakes up and, you know, is yelling and whatever, and I, I go and I say, what's the matter? She said, my, my blankets are messed up. And I'm not about getting up in the middle of the night to fix her blankets. Like, you're four years old. Is that really, y'all looking at me like I'm a jerk. Like, you're four years old, pull the blanket over yourself. You can do this, right? But this week she was having a hard time. She said, I had a bad dream. I was dreaming that the wolves were coming to get me. And so the, over this two hour or so long process, of getting her back to sleep. We had some opportunities. I said, God, what do you want to teach her? And, and, and I, so we talked about the, the devil is trying to trick you because there's no wolves coming to get you, right? Pretty sure, like in Tonawanda, there, there was a fox. I saw a fox several times during quarantine, but even he's not getting in the house and he's not that interested and it's not a wolf. And then she fell back asleep and woke up, or no, she, in the process of trying to fall asleep, she saw spiders everywhere. You know, she has spiders in her room. I don't know why that is. Almost every night we kill one before she falls asleep, but she thought there were spiders everywhere. And I said, again, the, the, the devil's trying to trick you. I said, but let's not concentrate on what he's doing. Let's talk about Jesus. So I told her, I said, listen, the Bible calls Jesus a lion. He's like a lion. And so there's no spider, there's no wolf, there's no nothing that's going to prevent Jesus from coming in and rescuing you. You can trust in him because he is a lion, he will take care of you. How many know that's good theology to fall asleep to? Right, if you're related to the lion, if you're the son of the lion, the daughter of a lion, if the lion's with you and he's on your side, you can sleep nuzzled up in that mane, and it's not scary to you, that's comforting. And so I was pretty sure, like, because eventually she fell back asleep, this would be good, like, we got some good bedtime theology. And she, she reflected that the, the next morning. She, she was talking to me about, I said, how'd you sleep? She said, good, the devil was trying to trick me. Okay, good. You got, she got that part. The devil's no good. He's trying to trick you. The, you know, the, the, the spiders and the wolves are not going to come. And she said, yeah, and Jesus is a tiger. 
And I was like, all right, something got lost in translation here. But if you believe that Jesus is a tiger, like close enough, I'm not going to challenge that one. Like whether he's a lion or a tiger, it's not exactly biblical, but you got the picture, right? Jesus is a tiger. And I don't know if maybe that's for somebody in here. That the next time you're falling asleep or the enemy wakes you up and he's coming at you with how you failed that day or he's coming at you with the worries of life or he's accusing you in some way or maybe even causing fear in your life. You're not afraid of wolves, but you're afraid of something else. Maybe you could just whisper, doesn't bother me because Jesus is a tiger. It'd probably be a good book, right? Sometimes we we feel like we need to get our theology right in order to do what God's called us to do. we, We can even have our theology off and it still works. And that's not heresy. It's just God is that good. Because if you had to have perfect theology for Jesus to work in your life, every one of us would be in trouble. Right? He's growing our theology. Right? He's growing our understanding. But what we pass on is really important, and especially at bedtime. And I know there's this common prayer, but most of you can quote it. It's, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake... I pray the Lord my soul to take. Isn't that a great prayer to pass on to four-year-olds? Like, I get the beginning part. Like, now I lay me down to sleep. I, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Like, God, I'm just entrusting my life to you, my, my, my heart, my, my body, everything to you. But then it switches to, and if I should die before I wake. How, how many four-year-olds fall asleep every night or should fall asleep every night thinking, tonight might be my last night? <laughs> That's not exactly a way to send kids off to sleep. And I don't know, you know, there's all different versions of this prayer, and the original probably didn't reflect that, but sometime in the mid-1700s, that that became a very popular way to pray in English, because it rhymes. Sometimes if it rhymes, doesn't mean it's good to pass on to kids, right? In fact, it's it's such a popular saying that there are are bands who have made it, have used these words and brought them into their songs. Do you want to, this is really interesting, how it's not really a good thing to pass on to our kids. The Doors have a song called Soul Kitchen. Metallica has a song called Enter the Sandman. Megadeth has a song called Go to Hell. Snoop Dogg has a song called Murder Was the Case. And Halsey has a song called Nightmare. These are the, <laughs> like these are what our culture takes for this prayer and puts them into their songs. Some of you are like, oh, don't touch Metallica, man. I- I'm not preaching against Metallica. Like, take it easy. But like, Megadeth is not the name of a band you want to play before your children are going to sleep, right? Right? Okay, thank you. I'm, I'm glad we're on the same one. But I, there is a version of this prayer that I really like. And it's one that was written by Shel Silverstein in his book, A Light in the Attic. And in it, this is his version of that prayer. And it has stuck with me all my life. Every time I hear this, this is the version I, I hear in my head. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my toys to break so none of the other kids can use them. Amen. (laughs) And I don't know, that that was just, like, that hit me where I was as a kid. If I can't have them, nobody should have them, right? Like, kids don't necessarily fall asleep about losing their lives during the middle of the night, but they, they would say, like, God, if something happens to me, don't let the, my brother or sister have my toys. Because it reflects the human nature that we have as children, and many times as adults, that fallen human nature that we inherited from Adam that we don't like to share. Right? How many of you know you have to teach kids to share? 
And that because of the fallen nature that we carry in Adam, that is reflected until it changes in Jesus Christ. Because the truth is this, our fallen human nature doesn't like to share, but our God who has given us a brand new nature in Jesus Christ is a generous God. How many of you like watching people teach little kids to share? It's hilarious. I was with some kids the other day and I heard some language come out of a little kid's mouth. Not bad language, but it just made me laugh because I could hear this. Here, here was the, the exchange. This, this little girl was at another little girl's house and there was an opportunity to share that came up and they had to share a toy. And the little girl whose house it wasn't said, hey, since this is your house, can I go first? Now that, that kid didn't learn that language just like, oh, I should go first because it's your house. That little kid heard mom and dad say, in our house we share, and so we let our guests go first. But she had flipped it, the script, and said, I want to go first because it's your house. <laughs> right? Kids are good at figuring out a way to get their needs met and to not have to share fully. Or if we're going to have to share, at least let me go first. Right? But we're going to talk this morning about our dad's nature of generosity. And we're going to continue our our series on being ready. And as we talked about being ready, we've talked about how it's important for us to be ready for Christ's return. But oftentimes, we can get sidetracked into just the end times theology, and we don't look at how God wants us to be ready to live our lives right now, how to demonstrate the kingdom right now, where we're at in our lives currently. And we're going to look at that this morning, and we're going to look at how God has called us to be ready, to be generous. Look with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy, if you would. We're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, in verse 17, it says this. Paul is writing to Timothy, again, last week we talked about him writing to Titus, similar situation. Timothy is an apostolic leader. He's been sent to Ephesus to lead the church there, and Paul is writing to him saying, this is how you ought to teach people to live. As you're developing the church with Jesus, as as you're appointing elders and leaders in the church, teach the people this. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives all that we need for our enjoyment. Paul is highlighting the nature of generosity. He's saying, listen, if you have something, oftentimes you are, we are tempted as human beings to think that we have earned that. And if we've earned it, then we put our trust in it. Think about it in your life. There was, there, hopefully there was a time in your life where you drew some money out of the bank and you got the receipt back for how much was in your checking account and it was like, oh, that's pretty good. I like that, but the problem is we're tempted when that's high to think that somehow our trust should be in the resources rather than in the resource giver. Or we, 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 even in the middle of that, like, oh, well, my trust isn't in the resources, but our trust is in the resource giver and we think we are the resource giver. The truth is this, everything that we have comes from our Heavenly Father who is generous with us. And we ought to be able to put our trust in him. And so he tells Timothy to teach the people, tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need. Always being ready to share 
with others. Always being ready to share. Always being ready to share. If we're going to be good at sharing, we've got to get ready to share. We're going to talk about what that looks like today. How do we become ready to share? Because in doing this, they'll be storing up treasures as a good foundation for the future so they may experience true life. If we're always ready to share, it results in something for our lives. Simply put, we are storing up. We're laying a foundation, and it's a foundation, Scripture says, for true life. Jake, would you run into the um, ready room and grab my computer? My notes are not complete. Whatever version uh, this morning that got onto this iPad, I preached off my computer at the early service, and whatever version got on this iPad is not complete. So I'm looking at my notes going, I'm missing some really good stuff. How many are you are willing to wait a minute or so so we can get all the good stuff? Nobody? Never mind then. Thank you, sir. You honor me. Give it up. He's looking fresh today. Someday, someday, Jake, I would like to have shoulders like that. Someday. Can you be generous and just give, me, give them to me? Thank you. Thank you. Usually when we talk about generosity, we're talking about financial resources, right? When we think of generous, when you think of a generous person, you think of somebody who's generous with their money or something that they're willing to give, some goods that they're willing to give. That's, that's a classic mindset of generosity. And generosity does have to do with that. Some people would say, well, all the church ever talks about is money. We are gonna talk about money today, but not only money. But here's the thing, when we say all the church ever talks about is money, it's because we don't wanna talk about money, right? And it's simply not true. Most churches don't spend all their time talking about money. There are a few that do that, but not all churches do that. Certainly this church doesn't do it. But it is important to talk about money and generosity and the resources that God has given us because it reflects, how we think about it reflects on how we do our lives, right? And how, whether or not we trust the Lord or we trust in our own resources matters. So we're going to talk about classic generosity this morning, and then we're going to talk about generosity of our dad in general. Classic generosity, if you want to read about it, there's some great scripture that talks about it. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. I want to read all of chapter 9 for us, just so we can see what God has to say about the practical outworking of our generosity in actual giving. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. He kind of sets up this great theology of giving in chapter 8. But in chapter 9, he talks about the very specific, like, living out nature of generosity. And here's what he says. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I really don't need to write to you about this ministry of giving for the believers in Jerusalem. He's been telling them, this is what giving is all about. Now he says, let's get practical, let's get get dirty. You're supposed to be taking offering for the believers in Jerusalem. He says, for I know how eager you are to help, and I've been boasting to the churches in Macedonia that you and Greece were ready to send an offering a year ago. In other words, Paul was in Greece, the people in Corinth were so excited about giving, they said, we're going to be the first to do it, and then he travels to Macedonia, he says, I've been telling everybody how excited you were about giving. In fact, it was your enthusiasm that stirred up many Macedonian believers to begin giving themselves. But I'm sending you these brothers to be sure that you are ready 
In other words, if we're going to be generous, sometimes it takes some planning. Sometimes it takes some work to make sure that we are able and ready to give. I'm selling, sending these brothers to you to be sure you are really ready, as I've been telling them, and that your money is all collected. I don't want to be wrong in my boasting about you. We would be embarrassed, not to mention your own embarrassment, if some Macedonian believers came with me and found that you weren't ready after all I had told them. So I thought I should send these brothers ahead of me to make sure your gift that is promised is ready. But I want it to be a willing gift, not one given grudgingly. In other words, Paul's saying, listen, we're coming, we're going to collect it. Don't be embar- I don't want you to be embarrassed about it. But also, I don't want you to feel pressured that I'm coming to give. Give out of your hearts. And then he says this, remember this, a farmer who only plants a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give, and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully, and God will generously supply all you need, and then you'll always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor, and their good deeds will be remembered forever. Paul is quoting from Psalm chapter 112, verse 9. He's saying, listen, I want you to remember, this isn't just a principle for you in church, this is a God principle for all time. In the Psalms, the psalmist wrote, they are always share freely and give generously to the poor, and their good deeds will be, you read the rest of that verse, it says this, and they will have influence and honor. In other words, how we live with generosity, how we live with our money, how we live with our resources, and whether or not we plan to be ready to give matters to the inheritance that we pass on, not just in a monetary way, but in an influence into the next generation kind of way. It matters to the generations that come after us how we live this generosity principle. And he says this, for God is the one who provides seed for the farmer. And bread to eat. And in the same way, he'll provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you'll be enriched in every way so that you can all be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met, but also they will be joyfully, sorry, they will joyfully express their thanks to God. And as a result of your ministry, They will give glory to God for your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you're obedient to the good news of Christ. And they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace that God has given you. Thank God for this gift, too wonderful for words. Can you imagine thinking about generosity and the gifts that God has given us that we get to give to others and not having any words for it? I mean, what kind of just... Real monetary generosity would someone have to pour out into your life for you to be at a loss for words. Some of you are like, well, I'm a very simple person. Like, I don't need anything. Just think for a minute. Like, what kind of generosity would you need to experience that would just take your breath away? That's what Paul says we are able to do in Christ, literally with our resources. So real quick, just want to go back over that chapter with you just briefly because it's talking about regular giving. God tells us, ready to give. Make sure the gift you promised is ready. And make sure that it's a willing gift and not a grudging gift. Because if we will plant generously, if we are willing to be generous people, we will receive a generous 
reward. And God will provide all for us that we need. And here's the promise. There will always be plenty left over to share. In other words, if we will commit ourselves to generosity, we don't have to worry about God giving us, us enough to share with other people. But it starts with us recognizing that God himself is generous and that we ought to live that way. And he says, literally, there are two things that result from it. One is this, it's our needs met. Some of us like to be generous when it meets a need, right? Like we'll give to somebody who has a need. We will fight for them because we feel good about it. But the truth is this, God isn't just calling us to give because there's a need. Because the needs will be met. Paul says the believers in Jerusalem will have their needs met if you give. We can meet the needs of others, but there is more to it that God wants to do. He says this, that the people who receive will explode with joy for God's generosity. And he says they will give glory to God, and it will prove our obedience to the gospel. So when somebody says, all the church ever talks about is money, we don't need to talk about it. No, in fact, we do need to talk about it because what we do with our pocketbook matters to whether or not we believe the gospel and the testimony that we give. And I'm not saying this to like, because we need money or we need offering today. I'm literally saying this because the gospel, how, how we believe about God matters to whether or not we live out the gospel. And one of the things that God is primarily concerned with is that we know and understand that he is a generous God. That's, a, that's the primary place that the enemy attacks us. He says, is God really that? Remember in the garden, God gave Adam and Eve everything they would need to eat? Everything they needed. They could eat from anything. How many of you know that's generous? God gave them a buffet. Anything you want, go ahead, just don't touch this one thing. And Satan, in attacking him, attacked God's generosity. He says, God doesn't want you to have it because he knows you're missing out on something. And so the enemy comes and attacks God, and he literally attacks gospel witness by causing us to be ungenerous people. Whether or not we are generous gives testimony to the gospel in our lives. Don't worry, I'm not asking for a big offering at the end of this. You're all looking at me like. But he also highlights in doing this that, that generosity is not just about money. It's about the gospel. And it's about generous hearts. See, generosity is more about the position of our heart than it is the position of our pocketbook or our wallet. Generosity is more about the position of our hearts than it is about the position of our pocketbook or our wallet. Because God isn't just generous with resources. God has been generous to us in incredible ways with some other things as well. God has been generous with us with grace and with mercy and with forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says this, you will know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. In other words, Jesus poured out all of himself for you and for me. And it says this, it was the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that caused him to do this. He was willing to extend grace to a people that didn't deserve it. He was willing to pour out himself in a way that gave everything that he had so he could be made rich spiritually in him. 
Scripture also says this, that he's rich in mercy and in forgiveness. In Matthew chapter 18, we have a classic example. Uh, When somebody says Matthew 18, most believers think of the thing that Jesus taught in the beginning of the chapter where he's like, hey, if you have to confront a believer, this is how you do it. How many of you have read Matthew 18? Am I the only one? Oh, I got a sermon to preach then. Matthew 18 is, how many of you are confrontational people? You, like, you wake up every day and you're like, I want to read Matthew 18 because I want to know how to do confrontation today. Like, that's my theme verse. God, you wake up and you gird up your loins. Come on, every day is a fight. I'm going to confront my wife or my husband first and then I'm going to confront every other person that I, you're just that kind of person. How many of you are the kind of person that you have to read Matthew 18 because you've got to like build yourself up to do confrontation, right? We all need to read it. It's important. But the, the, what I want to highlight is not how do we do confrontation because one of the disciples comes to Jesus after Jesus says, this is how you win your brother back. By the way, that's what, that's what confrontation is for. Confrontation is not to prove yourself right. It's to win your brother back into fellowship with God and with you. But then he, the, the disciple says, well, Jesus, how many times should I forgive, Right? Because that's the purpose. You want reconciliation. And he's like, how many times should I do this? And Jesus tells this amazing parable of the unforgiving debtor. What he says is this, and I'll just paraphrase it. He says there's a man who owed millions of dollars to his, to his master. Millions. I mean, it, that's not the word he used, but that's like in our terms, millions of dollars. And he comes to his master. He says, I can't pay it. Would you forgive me? Begs him. And the master says, sure, I'll forgive your debt. And then that same servant goes to another servant who owes him $1,000, thousands of dollars. And he says, pay me what you owe me. And that servant, in the same way, says, I can't pay it. Would you please give me some time to pay it? He doesn't even give him the time to pay it. He says, no, I'm going to throw you in jail until all of it's paid. First of all, counterintuitive, right? Because if you're in jail, you can't make the money to take care of it. But Jesus was telling this parable not to talk about money and and how to do credit and all that kind of stuff he was saying literally this is how many times you should forgive you should be forgiving in every circumstance abundantly because you you have had generous forgiveness given to you he said to his disciple you have to understand how much you've been forgiven so that you can forgive jesus says we ought to be generous in our forgiving nature because we have been forgiven so much But the truth is this, many of us don't believe that we've been forgiven from that much. We live like Jesus is an add-on to our lives. Like we know that we can never pay the debt, but it's not really that big in our lives. We don't live it every day. And the, the reason we can tell, or the way that we can tell, is because we are not generous in our own lives with forgiveness to those who offend us. Jesus said it's a small thing to forgive other people when we understand how much we've been forgiven. And here's the thing, we can't be generous with what we don't have. If I asked you for a million dollars right now, most of you, some of you could, but most of you could not give me a million dollars because you don't have it, right? You could reach into the pocket of the friend next to you and you could be generous with their money. But we can't be generous with what we don't have. What do I mean by that? If we have not experienced and don't know the grace and the mercy, and the forgiveness of Jesus. We can't be generous with others with it. And now some of us, well, I, 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 Pastor, I prayed the prayer. I got saved. Jesus, I know that I've been forgiven much. But if we don't live with the reality of that in our account every day, then we're not ready to extend it to those around us. 
And we know it because when somebody needs forgiveness, we're not quick to give it to them. I'm ashamed of, of the way that I treat other drivers often. And that's the easy one, right? Because I don't know any of these people. I should be real easy at forgiving them. I'm ashamed sometimes about the lack of forgiveness, mercy, and grace I give to my wife. Or I give to my children. Or I give to my employees. Because generosity is not just what we do with our money. It's how we live with that which God has been so generous with us for. And if he's been generous with grace and mercy and forgiveness in our lives, we ought to be able to be generous with others. But if we don't know that we've been forgiven so much, if we haven't experienced it ourselves, and I don't mean like experience it once, I mean like currently experience the overflow, right? Like if if you used to have a million dollars, but you don't have it right now, and I asked you for a million dollars, you couldn't give me the million dollars you used to have. And if, you, if, you, if, I, if I need forgiveness from you, and God wants you to pour out forgiveness and generously through you, you can't give it if it's not current in your account. Now, it's current in your account in the sense of Jesus has done everything, but sometimes it's not current in our account because we're not aware to carry it. And, we, and so we don't extend it to others in our lives. And so God has called us to be okay being the subject of generosity. Sometimes people are too prideful to allow the generosity of others to be given to them. Hey, can I give you this? No, 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 that's okay, I got it. Some of us need to grow first and primarily in being able to have other people provide for us. And the thing that stands in the way is pride. Can you, would you like this? I can, I can do it myself. And we think that we're somehow you know, doing somebody else a favor. We need to be good at being the subject of generosity, being the object of generosity, somebody pouring out into our lives because it recognizes a need that we have for the generosity of God. And in some ways, we don't do that because we don't let God tell us about how much we've been forgiven. And so I think that there's a way, and this is why we're talking about being ready to be generous, there's a way for us to prepare our hearts and our lives to be generous. How many of you would like to be ready to be generous? Don't, don't, don't be afraid. Again, I'm not going to ask for a big offering. But by raising your hand, by saying, yes, God, I'm ready to be generous, you're inviting the generosity of God into your life so that you can give what you have partaken of. So how do we plan for generous living? Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25 gets us started in a good way. It says this, the generous will prosper and those who refresh others will be refreshed. In getting ready to live generous, in planning to be generous, in being ready to be generous, we are inviting the prosperous nature of God into our lives. Again, don't get worried. We're not talking prosperity gospel. We're just talking about the way God's generosity works. God always, because of the nature of his generosity, prospers the generous. Isaiah 32, 8 says this, but generous people plan to do what is generous, and they stand firm in their generosity. In other words, like, 
you put that extra $100 in your wallet and you start looking for people to extend that generosity to. If it's grace and mercy, you, you put that into your account, you experience the grace and mercy and favor and forgiveness of God every day so that you are looking for people who need it to extend it to. Do you know there's a whole generation of people who are just waiting for a man or a woman of God to tell them that they are forgiven? Your husband, your wife is just waiting for you to forgive them. They can't forgive themselves for something they've done, maybe to you or to somebody else. They're waiting for you to extend the forgiveness of Jesus Christ to them. Your coworker who seems so angry and violently opposed to God probably has never experienced the forgiveness of God. And the weight, sometimes as Protestants, we get this wrong because we operate in a religious spirit. It's the same religious spirit that Jesus encountered in the religious people of his day when he started forgiving people's sins and they got really upset with him. They're like, you can't do that. You are not allowed to forgive people's sins. That's something that only God can do. Who the heck do you think you are? And they they used worse language than that. Whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever we loose on earth. He tells us we can forgive, saying that we have the power in and of ourselves to forgive. But in Jesus Christ, in our connection to God, in the forgiveness that we have received, we can extend it to others. People are just waiting to hear from you, from your mouth, that you are forgiven in the name of Jesus Christ. Because you're just giving testimony to the power of God, what he is able to do. But we can't be generous with it if we don't know, if we're not ready to do it. So let's plan to be generous so that we not only plan to do it, but we stand firm in that generosity. I want to tell you two stories as we get ready to close. They're from 2 Kings chapter 3 and chapter 4. How do we plan to live generous? How do we get ready to live generous? How do we stand firm in our generosity by making room for it in our lives? So in 2 Kings, there's two stories. They're both about Elisha and what God did through him, about that prophetic word that God gave to get ready for the generosity of God. Real quick, these probably should be whole sermons in and of themselves. I should probably not share them with you because I always have this temptation to not go back, you know, like I always want that fresh, new, hot word or whatever, but it's just, I can't pass them up. They're just really good examples. We'll get back to them. We'll break them apart at some point. But what's happening is in the first account in chapter 3, The people of Judah and the people of Israel are going to attack the Moabites. And they invite the people of Edom to go along with them. And they go through the desert to attack. And as they're going through the desert, the Bible says there's no water for any of the men or any of the animals. How many of you know when when you don't have water and you're walking through a desert with an army, you are in trouble? Right? You lose your strength and you're in danger and the people of God cry out and they're like God we thought you called us to do this we're trying to do what you asked us to do have you brought us out into the desert to die they're they're highlighting the attack of the enemy that's how the enemy attacks us is God really that good did he he brought you out here because he just wants you to die you followed what you thought God told you to do and God's not going to take care of you and the king of Israel cries out like, what in the world should we do? He, be- he declares the, the, the talk of the enemy. His God just brought us out here to die. And the king of, Israel, of Judah, King Jehoshaphat, says no. 
There's one here, Elijah. There's a prophet who can tell us what God's saying. And so they brought the prophet out, and they, they, the Bible says they were playing music, actually. And it says, while the harp was being played, the power of the Lord came upon Elisha. And this is what he said in verse 16. He says, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. And he says, tomorrow it's not going to rain. You're not going to see wind or clouds. You're just going to see this valley full of water. God is going to fill it with water. Now, if you look at the original Hebrew, there's a debate about whether or not God said, I will make this valley full of ditches, or you make this valley full of ditches. In other words, is God going to just sovereignly do what God does, or is God asking his people to actually dig some ditches? Now, if you think that you have a problem with that theology, just go to the very next story, because it, it, it gives us clarity on the way God works. And in, in the very next chapter, Elijah the prophet is going about his business, and a woman, a widow, comes up to him and says to him, my, fa- my husband served with you as a prophet, and he's dead now, and I don't have anything. We have a huge debt, and I don't have anything to pay it with. Me and my sons can't, can't take care of it. And so that same prophet, Elisha, prophesies to the woman. He says, go and get as many jars. Well, he says, what do you have, first of all? And she says, I just have a little jar of oil. He says, okay, great. Go get every possible container you can find. Borrow them from your friends. Get them all together. And so she goes and does that, and and she starts to pour out of this little jar of oil into every container. And the Bible says that every container gets filled up, and then she fills up the next one. And this little jar of oil is multiplied over and over again, every container full. And finally she says, bring me another container. And her son says, there aren't any more containers. And he says, great. The Bible says that the oil stops flowing right then. What, What do we learn from these scriptures? We learn that Whatever we make room for in our lives, God's going to pour his generosity into. Oftentimes, and here's a principle, our, God's generosity is limited to our ability to receive. It's not that he doesn't have the resources. It's not that he doesn't want to give us more. He is always able. He is, he, he is by nature generous. But he is looking for a people who will make room for his generosity in our lives. If we want to be generous, if we want to be ready to be generous, we've got to make room for that. So here's my question. What ditches do you need to dig in your life? What, who do you need to borrow some vessels from? What plans do you need to make? Because again, if we're going to be generous, we've got to have an experience of God's generosity ourselves. We can't give what we don't have. So maybe for you this morning, you need to dig a a well, you need to dig a ditch, you need to borrow a vessel of forgiveness. You don't know how to extend forgiveness to others because you're still bitter and haven't experienced the forgiveness of God in your heart for what you've done. Maybe you want to be generous to give and yet the well or the the ditch that you have for God's generosity is only this deep and he's saying would you believe me for more maybe there's some mercy that you need to extend to your boss or your coworker 
or the person sitting next to you. And God wants to pour it out generously, but you got nothing to give. Let's start this morning by allowing God to pour out generously into our lives so that we can give to others. Would you close your eyes with me? Just let me ask you that question one more time. Where do you need to make room for the generosity of God for you? So that we can be ready. So we can take God at his word. So we can trust him that he is generous. So we can demonstrate that we believe the gospel. That he will provide all of our needs. That our trust is not in our own resources. Maybe take out a pen and write it down. Maybe take out your phone and make a note or a reminder. Maybe it's a conversation on the way home with your husband who, you've, who just is dying for, to hear that you forgive him for something that he did that was messed up. Maybe your wife, maybe you need to extend grace to your wife where you have, you have grown cold towards her and you expect and demand too much and you don't just lavish her with love and with praise. Maybe God is doing right now a, a pouring into your life so that you can pour that out to her. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe they've had some desires and you haven't been real generous with them and God wants to show you how to be generous with them because he will provide for you. Maybe it's a coworker, like I said, or a student. Well, whoever it is, like, God, show me how to get ready to be generous. Because you've been so generous with me. We're going to celebrate communion right now. This is a remembrance of how generous our God has been with us. you take out the elements right now just by way of reminder pulling the clear tab first and taking out the bread makes it easier not to spill we celebrate an open communion here which simply means this if you have a relationship with jesus you're eligible so anybody that doesn't have elements we can get those to you can i have an usher grab a few elements they are coming your way you guys see who needs them It's okay, we can wait. Do the Bills play today? At one? I don't even know. I need to stop watching the Bills so I don't lose my salvation every week. Oh, they're playing the Jets at one? We don't need to watch that game. Scripture tells us to wait for everybody. Everybody serve now? Great. The Bible tells us that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is given for you generously, right? He, then he took the cup and he said, this cup represents a new covenant established in my blood. 
So often as you eat this bread, as often as you drink this cup, do it to remember. We are remembering the generosity of God. We are confirming it. Even in doing this, we are getting ready to be generous with others. Listen, there's no grace that comes into your life by eating the bread and drinking it, drinking the the juice. But there is grace that comes into our lives as we remember what they mean, what Jesus did for us. It's literally an opportunity to experience the grace and mercy and celebrate the forgiveness of God so that we can be generous with others. So it makes no sense to do this and not regard our brother or sister. It makes no sense to do what we're about to do right now and not live out the generosity that we just determined that we were going to live out. So let's not be hypocrites. Let's be joyful uh, experiencers of the generosity of Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that in your generosity you gave of your body and of your blood so that we could be reconciled to you, so that we could have relationship with you, so that we could walk with you, so we could have forgiveness of sin and freedom from the power of death, hell, and the grave, that you are the one who made it possible by your generous giving. We receive it again afresh today, and as we do, Father, I pray that a spirit of generosity would come over us, realizing how much you have done for us, and that we would be the the first to extend that generosity to others around us in word, in deed, in forgiveness, in mercy, and in finances and resources and time. We thank you for your generosity that you poured into our lives. We celebrate it, and we look forward to your coming. In Jesus' name, let's eat and drink together. Jake is coming now to close. I pray that as you go, You go as people who are full of the generous nature.